on our series in, um, well, no, we're not in a book specifically. It's called Life Together. So we're doing, uh, I'm looking at different parts of Scripture um, and, and really digging into those little passages that, and looking at what it means to live together. All those thorny relationships of, between marriage and singleness and uh, not just even with one another, but even as we're going to see in a few weeks, our relationship with ourselves, our identity, who are we? Um, and we're taking time. And today, uh, I thought I'd look at friends and friendship, which is um, a little bit more upbeat. Uh, and we're going to look at a passage in Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6 to 18. So read with me. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went, on the way, uh, sorry, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go, go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and, he sh and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from, my, sorry, return from following you. For where you, you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So friendship is, um, we're in something that the scientists and sociologists are calling this pandemic or this, uh, this epidemic of loneliness, where increasingly we are more lonely. And it's not just anecdotal. It, it seems to be real. In 1990, only 3% of people said that they had no friends that were close, no close friends. Today, that number is quadrupled to 12%. In 1990, 27% of people said they had less than three close friends. That number has gone to 50% now. And of course, um, that COVID has, has impacted that, right? COVID has, has certainly accelerated our loneliness gap. However, it's not just that. And it's funny. We think and we hear that socio, you know, people say, you know, it's good that people aren't marrying as young as they used to. It's good that we're spending more time single and traveling. And I can see part of that, but here's the irony. People who wait longer to get married don't have any more friends. You know, the assumption is I get married and then I, all of a sudden I've got kids and I'm just hanging out with couples and there goes my life. Um, but the stats aren't proving that that although they may travel more, they have less friends or the same amount of friends. It doesn't seem to make a difference for us. Um, and interestingly as well, 
and COVID accelerated this too, people are turning to their friends less when they're in trouble and more to their parents. And we know this is why many people are staying with their parents longer. And so all this is, is leading to a spot where it's getting worse, not worse, but less friends, less friends, less friends time and again. And we all know anecdotally as well that kids, how many of us when we were kids, even when I was a kid, um, you got home from school and you immediately went outside, unless your parents got to you before you did your homework. But you went outside, and that's just what you did. But today, it's less so. The kids are coming home from school, and maybe they're connecting with their friends, but they're doing it online. And it's not just the kids. They're learning it from us. Because we as people, as adults, as parents, are not going out for dinner dates and for coffee and for wine and cheese. Instead, we're staying home more and we're binging Netflix. And this problem continues to worsen and worsen. And scientists are well aware of the fact that it is causing incredibly terrible health, mental and physical health problems for us. The lonelier we are, the worse we seem to do health-wise in every regard. And here's the, the challenge, though. Secular scientists, meaning scientists of no faith, um, often come to this conclusion. The reason you and I struggle with loneliness and not having friends isn't because we are meant to have friends, but because evolution has made it such that you and I knew as cave people that we could only survive if we had a lot of friends around us. So because of that, we got used to having friends around and it meant protection. So now as we're not having friends, we feel that anxiety and it causes all sorts of health problems with us. Now that seems to make sense, but underneath that assumption is this. You weren't made to be in community. You just learn to be in community. So your problem is really that you have to learn to be alone. And that's the humanistic assumption. The Bible, however, comes and says, I think what is much more accurate to what we feel and what we experience, which is you and I seem to be made to be in community. And this is the assumption of the Bible. And this is what we see here in this book of this, this passage in Ruth, is that not only are we made for it, but that Community and friendships are a great gift from, for God, from God for us individually, but for the world as well. And when we, when we look at a passage like this, here's a lesson. When you're reading narrative parts of Scripture, meaning stories, they're not, um, they're not like didactic parts, which is Paul. You know, when Paul writes a letter, he says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. When you read a narrative part, a story, it comes at you in a far less precise way, less dogmatic way. And instead, you have this example, this model, this picture of friendship. And you're having to pull lessons out of it. So we're going to do that quickly, hopefully. And as we do that, we're going to see this passage shows us, again, not everything about friendship. But it shows us that friendships are built, they bind us to one another, and they're beautiful. And you're going to see that, hopefully, in this passage with these women. So let's first say but that friendships are built. Uh, Henry V. Strange place to start. Henry V, uh, this play by William Shakespeare, is about a king in the 15th century, early 15th century. And he, um, uh, well, Shakespeare makes him sound like a great, wonderful Christian, as if he was Christ incarnate. He wasn't. But he was in the play anyway. He's, they, they, he's at this battle, this epic battle, this incredibly important battle in human history called the Battle of Agincourt, or Agincourt, if you're French. And it happens in 1415, near this time, October 25th. And it happens on a day called St. Crispin Day, Crispian's Day. It's a saint day. And um, in the play, he gives this epic 
speech to rouse his men because if you know anything about the battle, they're radically outnumbered by the French. And they've been fighting, they've been marching, they're wet, the field of battle is muddy, they can't even use horses, just a nightmare. So Henry in this gives the most rousing speech that you've probably heard parts of it. So here's what this speech, part of the speech says. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse that they were not here and hold their manhoods, manhoods cheap while they, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. So Henry's saying, hey, you're in this battle and it stinks, but the world's going to remember this battle. Men are going to be embarrassed that they were at home sleeping while we were fighting. Kids will remember us. And, and he talks about this band of brothers. You know, there's an HBO show called Band of Brothers about the Second World War. And this idea that hardship binds men together as soldiers is not new. It's, it's, it's existed long before Shakespeare. Homer speaks about it in the Iliad. So it's, an under, it's understood that hardship has a unique power to forge people together. But it's not just, of course, uh, war. Um, if, if you spend any amount of time, and this may... Don't, nobody hate me for saying this, but this is my experience. If you spend any number of time at a family event, what happens is the men will go off to one room eventually, and the women will go off to another. And the men will start talking about, and I, I mean, for me, it's always church stuff or sports. The women, inevitably, I feel like, start talking about how their childbirth stories. I don't know if that's for everybody. That might just be my experience. Or, or in some cases, if it's infertility. Um, but either way, it's the pain right? They started, how long I was in, oh my goodness, this happened. And the men, the same thing. And hardship does seem to create this bond. And it's not just that, it gets more sad and tragic, not just with infertility, which can be so difficult, but with being bullied, with being marginalized, with any number of things. And so, when, and, and it's not just, the, this isn't just a theory. Um, study or, or researchers at the University of Queensland in uh, Australia in 2014 had this this experiment. They wanted to see how suffering works as a social glue to make a, make a culture, keep a society together. And so what they did is they got a bunch of people and they put them into two groups and they had to do these exercises together in, in these groups. But one group was given a much more painful exercise. For instance, they were given freezing cold water that they had to put their hands in and, uh, and sort metal balls in the freezing cold water. The other group had room temperature water. And they did things like that. And then at the end, they asked them questions. And interestingly, maybe not interestingly, when they asked these people, do you feel like you belong where you're accepted in your little group? The people who suffered in the cold water overwhelmingly said, yes, I'm part of this group. The ones who didn't suffer overwhelmingly said, no, I don't feel like I'm part of this group. And it went even further. Then they said, choose a number from one to seven, any number you want. But understand that if you choose the number seven, the other people you are with will benefit. If you choose any other number, you will benefit. So the people who suffered with one another chose seven more often because they wanted to benefit the group. Their loyalty was there. The ones who didn't almost always voted for themselves. Now, this does it, so we look at this, this bonding mechanism. It's not the only way to be bond, bound in friendship. But, friend, but, but suffering does, is, is a key part here with Ruth and Naomi. 
when you look at what they've experienced, of course they had good years. They had 10 years, we're told in the parts we didn't read, that 10 years where Ruth and an opera, Oprah, 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 sorry, it's not Oprah. I wish she was Christian. She is not. Um, so, <laughs> I was almost said again, Orpah. So the two of them were married to Naomi's sons. And they had 10 wonderful years there, but all of their husbands eventually die. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and then the two sons, uh, Malon and Kilian, uh, die as well. And what we're seeing is we're only given the, uh, an insight here to their suffering because they had family together, so good times, but they suffer together. They've all experienced being widows. They all share a common destitution. In that culture, as you're well aware, if you've attended here for any length of time, it was not easy to be a woman who is a widow in that culture. So they're all looking forward to a very miserable rest of their lives if they don't marry. So they have this commonness there as well. And I would say I love it, but it's kind of tragic that two times in this passage alone, we're told that they lift up, lifted up their voices and wept together. They weep. They have this common suffering that binds them together. But it's not only suffering, so I don't want to make everybody think if you have a friend, it's only because you've suffered together, um, though that, of course, is part of it. And you know who gets this really good is C.S. Lewis, and we'll return to him a few times today because he wrote a lot about friendships because he's a man who lived as a bachelor for most of his life and had a group of friends, he called them the Inklings, uh, like J.R.R. Tolkien and himself, who were good buddies. And he talks about how friendships are forged. And here's what he says. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And Lewis notes, he's right. There is a... For, friendships are built on something. Friendship, and, and Lewis goes on to say, you know, those people who only want friends never find friends because all they want is the friend, not realizing that friendships have to be built on something, some sort of commonality. It could, sometimes it, it's never frivolous, though. You may have a, a passing interest in something, but he says, you know, friendships are built on something that you can agree on, even if you don't agree on every part of it. For instance, you may disagree on vaccines. Do, they get, do you get vaccinated? Do you not? Lewis would say, don't stop being a friend with somebody because they disagree with you on something like that. Because if they're really adamant about it, what you do agree on is it's a very important question. And that truth ought to be enough to get you through the disagreement because you agree on the same truth. And he goes much, much further on. But let me stop on this point, first point here to say that friendships are always built on some sort of commonality. And then when you discover this commonality as friends, then the next logical step, even if you don't know it, is that you bind yourselves together. Okay? Friendships then become bound. And this gets to point two. Look at how they respond, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, to their joint suffering. First, Naomi jumps in right away and says, save yourselves. She's a classic mom here, which is, I, uh, don't worry about me. You ladies need to get a life. You're still young enough. You can have a husband, go. Find a husband. You still have a hope. I don't, so leave. Orpah then does something that I think she's been unintentionally vilified at times. She leaves. Orpah decides, 
yes, the most logical thing is for me to go back to my home and find a husband if I can. And she leaves. Ruth, however, it says, clings to, to Naomi. Now, it's very important we realize the language, what the authors say and don't say. When the author does not tell us that, uh, that Orpah did a bad thing, don't say that she did. Orpah didn't make a bad choice in leaving Naomi. She's not a bad human being. If, if, if she was, we probably would have been told somehow. Instead, what Orpah's doing is doing exactly what a logical woman in that age would have done. She had no hope unless she went back. And, we, and because, if you start to see that, or if you start to think that Orpah is a bad human being for leaving Naomi, then the logical response without you even thinking is to think, Ruth is good, Orpah bad. But that's not what the narrative wants you to see. The writer doesn't want you to think Ruth did the good thing. No, no, no. They want you to see that Ruth did the extraordinary thing, the unexpected countercultural thing. And it's not about good or bad. Don't think that. Orpah did what most of you moms would ask your daughter to do, right? If, if I pass away, I assure you, Sarah is in her best interest, even in this culture, to move on. It's just the way it is, if, if God wills, of course. It's the right thing in that culture. However, what Ruth does is completely mind-blowing. And I like what Marquet said earlier, because the difference between what Orpah does and what Ruth does is rooted in how they see the world. It's, simple, it's a worldview issue. Not a good or bad, but different glasses they're wearing. And so, with that, let me see. They both make very difficult choices. Let's look at this word cling. What is Ruth doing? You know, we just talked last, last week, week before, about how in Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 2.24, sorry, it says that when Ruth, uh, so when man leaves his, his family and binds himself, he clings, he holds fast to his wife. Well, this is the same word here. So what we're being told is that Ruth clings to Naomi like a man clings to, to his wife. Now, let me be clear. If you as a modern person think that friendships can only happen in a homosexual reality, may I say you're not only deluded by the culture, but you've probably never had a friend. Because friends can be friends without it becoming sexual. Let me just be clear. So, sorry, I have to throw that in there in this modern age. You have to stick that in. We're not talking about an erotic relationship here. We're talking about a woman who sees that she wants to knit her life and her circumstances to her hurting friend. So she clings to her in that way. Now, with that being said, this is what, what, what is interesting is this. The bond of suffering has now led Ruth to forsake the bonds of ethnicity and religion and comfort for the sake of making her friend happy, making her friend, giving her friend life, essentially. And this is what her worldview does. It says, let me cling to her, because it's kind of like the marriage. Remember a couple weeks ago, we said the marriage, our jobs is to make the other radiant? Well, friendships are very similar. Ruth says, my life isn't to keep, but to help and lay down for her. How do I help her to survive? And this, of course, leads to what she says, her stirring words in verse 16 and 17, which is a pledge. She then pledges herself. Now, you probably haven't pledged yourself to your friends, like, in a formal way, but this is very ancient. This is a very common cultural way of showing your steadfastness towards another. So she's resolute. Don't ask me to leave you. Then she sets out the terms of the covenant. I will, and it's, if you look at them, you see they escalate. They get more severe every time she lays something down, and they all have a different perspective. So first she says, where you go, I will go, meaning my nation will be your nation. 
Where you dwell, where you lodge, will be mine. So her address will be where Naomi's is. Where your people will be my people. She's forsaking her ethnicity. I'm no longer a Moabite. I will become a Jew if I need to, ethnically speaking. And then, even religiously, your God will be my God. In the community groups, you can talk about whether this amounts to a conversion. I won't get into that today. Then, where you die, I will die. Meaning, she's committing her life. My life is with yours. It's till death do us part, essentially. And then it gets even more wonderful when she says, I'll be buried where you're buried. In the ancient world, you're buried where you, ha- where you were born, where your home is. Remember Jacob wanting to be buried in the promised land and things? So when Ruth says, I'll be buried, she's saying, I'm changing my citizenship. I'm doing it all for you. Because your life is, my- we're intertwined. We're friends. And everything of mine is yours. And this is incredible. Lewis goes on to say, lovers may be perceived as standing face to face. Friends stand side by side, facing things together constantly. So, let me explain why, how it's different, though, because marriage is not friendship. There is a difference. You don't share everything in a friendship that you do in a marriage. Obvious one being physicality, sexuality. We know that. But why is, what the key difference between the two isn't even that. It's a matter of exclusivity. In a marriage, it's exclusive. Husband, wife, that's it. There's no third party that you bring into that, at least not in, under God's sovereignty. That, that doesn't happen. But friendships are open. Let, let Lewis speak again. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights, uh, sorry, other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness to resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. I'll explain this. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision cry, Holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. He's, Lewis is brilliant here. He's saying, when I have somebody with me, my friend, I can know one-on-one, face-to-face, side-by-side with them. But some parts of them I can't draw out. I'm not big enough. And so a third person will come, and maybe they've got the sense of humor. And then you hear the friend that you've known forever laugh, and you think, I've never heard them laugh that way. And as a result, as more friends who are bonded by this common interest, whatever they might be, as they, more as they get together, the more they reveal of one another, the more they reveal even of themselves. And he says, this is, the, this is what heaven and the church is like. Because all of you have a perspective about God I don't have. Anyone who's ever been a teacher knows that you learn almost as much from your students as you do from the books. Because as students ask questions, you're like, I never thought of that. You guys are always emailing me questions, constantly. And very often I'm thinking, you know, I haven't thought of it that way. And I am then opened up to seeing more of God because of you. And that is what friendship does. That's why it's not exclusive. It is saying, come, the more the merrier, come on. As long as they can agree on whatever that core would be, says Lewis. Now. And this is, I love it. This is why the angels cry out, holy, 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 he's saying. The angels are saying it. Listen, the angels know. They know God is holy. 
But what they're doing is they're saying, they're hoping that, this Lewis would suggest anyway, and maybe this is the way it'll be in the new earth because we'll all be there with Christ. So what's the point in art expressing God if we are all standing in front of him, right? Is it possible that the seraphim, the angels, just like we will one day be called to do, and we do now, are saying, holy, 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 look at how I see him to be holy. Does it help you fill out your vision of who God is as holy? So that's how they bind themselves one another. Then, lastly, it's beautiful. Friendship is beautiful. The grace that's on display in this passage is bar none, probably the most beautiful between two humans um, that I know of in the Old Testament. So let's look at how, they re- how this is shown here. First, as I said earlier, Naomi acts like a mom, right? Go, save yourself. Some people will be, some scholars pick on Naomi here and will say, Look, she doesn't even, she's, she may not even be a Christian or a believer. And that's possibly true because, remember, she's at the time of judges, and you'll be able to talk about that at your community groups. But let's not be too hard here on Naomi. She's living in a time when the whole world had no idea who God was, and they're mixing religions. It's called syncretism. So, but aside from that, she is blinded a little bit by her suffering, right? She is under the impression that God has completely abandoned her, right? She says, I'm bitter. It's God, the hand of God is against me. Later on, she'll say, call me bitter, you know, because I'm, I'm bitter and so on. And although we want to say, oh, where is her faith? No, let's not do that. Let's instead say suffering and sin is making it hard for her to see the God that we know she knows. And I know she knows this because she prays to Ruth, that Ruth and Orpah, be given, that God would go to them and he would treat them with kindness, she says, that God would be kind to you. Now, that word kindness in Hebrew is the word hesed, which is this word that's usually of God and how God interacts with his people. It's a covenant love, this unbending faithfulness. So when Ruth says this and says that God would come and treat a Moabite, a non-Jew, like a Jew, that he would treat you, show you the love he shows his people, she she has this awfully big assumption of God that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the sort of God who will love people outside of his borders and who don't even honor him necessarily. And that is challenging. It's a big challenge, especially in the ancient world when there, every nation had its own gods. So she has this big, beautiful view of God. But here's the great challenge. For, this is where I, I feel sorry for Naomi. She's under the impression that God has left her and abandoned her, not realizing that in Ruth he has been clinging to her. The whole time, she says, he's not here, he's gone. And Ruth probably wasn't aware of it, because friends don't often think that way. Like, I am God's messenger to keep you. We don't say that to each other. And yet, this is exactly what's happening here. She doesn't see that in Ruth, God is clinging to Naomi. And now we turn to Ruth. Ruth shows the gospel so clearly here. She knows that if she keeps her life, Naomi will lose hers. She knows it. If she goes back like Orpah, which she could and she'd be well within her rights to do, if she does that, Naomi's chances of survival are slim. There's no hope for her to remarry and have children. It's very unlikely. If she holds on to her life, Naomi loses hers. And she chooses instead to risk poverty, marginalization, rejection, and everything else, to go into a foreign country. And if you, once we get into Judges in the New Year, you're going to see Moabites and, and Israel were not friends. It would not be pleasant it's almost, I think now in our context, if a Russian was to go and live in the Ukraine, it would be, be hard for them. And Ruth instead doesn't say, well, what's in it for me? She says, I'll risk all of that in order to make you whole, to help you. 
Now, we have friends in our lives. Facebook says I've got like a thousand friends. <laughs> I don't. But for most people that would call, I'd call friends flippantly, I would do something for them. I'd give them my time, I might call them, but I wouldn't give them my life. I wouldn't say to Sarah, we're up and moving because so-and-so needs help. I just wouldn't. So this is the key part of the beauty of the friendship that we see that God gives as a gift, is the willingness to even give up our own comfort for them. It's one thing to say I tithe to the church and I give to people who need. It's another thing to say I will give everything and put myself in poverty to get them out of poverty. Would you exchange places for them? Not many people in your life. Could you count them on one hand? Other than your kids? Who other than your kids? It's very rare. And so we should see this as an incredible story of grace that's going on here. Now, but we have to remember this. All the while, and I love the book of Judges for this reason, all the while the world and the scholars call the book of Judges a flushing toilet because it gets worse and worse and worse as it spirals down. All the while the world seems to have forgotten God, he is at work in this tiny friendship to accomplish everything he said he would do in Genesis 3 and Deuteronomy 18 to bring a king and a prophet. Through this simple friendship, he is going to bring the Messiah. And we have to, though, be careful about our friendships. Friendships are important, but they, much like our, our marriages, are shadows. Shadows are real, but they're not really real. They're an image. They're a, a, a suggestion of something real, because the real thing is the thing that's casting the shadow. So the reason we can't mistake our friendships for God and for the goal of our lives to have friendships and marriage is this. Let's look at these pictures. Look how shadows can be misunderstood. Can you see this up here? There's a shadow. That couple seems to be ready to kiss, right? But let's reveal the rest of the, show, the picture. They're just walking by each other. The picture caught at the right time. See, the shadow is a distortion of the reality. Sin has done that in all of our relationships. So the shadow is good and sometimes tells the truth, but it can't be confused for the reality. Let's look at another one just for fun's sake. That looks to be a pregnant woman. It is indeed a woman holding. Let's look at another one. Looks to be a, it looks to be a cat. What is it? It's a dog. It's the opposite of what you thought. And the last one, this is a French beatnik smoking a cigarette maybe. I don't know what that is. But what is it really? It's a stack of papers with a cigarette sticking out of it. It is very impressive. So, you see, friendships, as important and as good as they are, aren't the end in of themselves. They're pointing to a better thing. And we have to realize that, that it's always pointing us. Our marriages are good, hopefully. But they point us to a better marriage. And they prepare us for the better marriage in the end. And let me use, um, the, what is that better friendship? It's Christ. Christ comes to earth. He takes these 12 guys who are his friends. And the Gospel of Mark, you know, not just that, think about the terms we just used. He takes their common sinful nature and bears it on himself. He then binds himself to them and says, I'll never let you go. I will not lose one of you that has come to me, and I will not depart from you ever. You'll never be separated from me. Then he goes to the cross, and here you see the beauty of friendship. Because at the cross, the Gospel of Mark tells us every friend abandoned him. Other gospel writers say there are some people there. Mark is ruthless. Nobody was there. He's abandoned at the cross, and he there is dying for the friends who would abandon him. That is the beauty of friendship, that willingness to be, to be able to sacrifice everything. And so when we experience that in our relationships, we should be 
We should enjoy them. We should have fun. We should love it. But we should remember that there's limits, however, that this points to a much more faithful friend than the one we have here. And let me, let me use, I could say more, but let me lose, close with Lewis. One more thing. He talks about how lucky people are to be friends. He is lucky beyond dessert, not desert, to be in such company, especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all, his, all that is best, wisest, or funniest than all the others. Those are the golden sessions when four or five of us, after a hard day's walking, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, and no one has any claim on or claim on or any responsibility for another, but all are free men and equals, as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time, an affection mellowed by, years un- by the years unfolds us or enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? And that's what best friendships do, but he's right. Who can deserve it? Nobody. The reason you have friendships is because Christ had none. And that image there is to show us that we are given friends that are meant to forge us. We're, we're given friends to build us into creatures that are prepared for this better friendship, to help us get through this life. We have roots in our lives that maybe we haven't even thanked, but we probably should. And that is such a gift that God gives us. It's a gift to each one of us, but also a gift for the world as we model these sorts of relationships. Listen, even if the world isn't transformed by it, you and I are obedient as we do it. And so we're called, let's, let's, let's spend more time staring at these sorts of friendships and trying to think about how they point us to Christ. Let's pray.